This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Hi, I'm Greg Watson, and welcome to this week's show of Property Matters, where we talk all things property. It's great to have your company today, and I was out and about actually just on the weekend chatting to people, and I was talking to a builder or two, and you may or may not be aware that there's a jib shortage, and I noticed that there was an article just in the last few days that said that there's fears for independent builders who can't get jib. Builders fear for the survival of larger independent building companies as the jib shortage worsens. Uh, it says it could be catastrophic financially, according to this article by Brianna Micklewraith in stuff.co.nz. The jib shortage had affected business quite dramatically for Jeremy Long, who runs Long Construction. In terms of delays in sourcing products, it had taken him a bit by surprise, he said. But he said he's still one of the lucky ones. He says, they used to put in an order and have it the following week, and that was up until last year. But now he had to order six to seven months in advance. But he was working on a large-scale architectural house and had ordered jib early, just in time before things turned. Mike Greer, in this article, had to wait nine months for resource consent to build 70 townhouses. Now he has another lengthy wait for building consent. And he believed he would get through the shortage and delays relatively unscathed due to the size of his business, but others would not. I was one of the lucky ones, he says. I've got a lot of friends that have four or five staff and are building a couple of houses and found themselves short and had to shut down sites. He says he's okay, but he's worried about the bigger players in the industry. The biggest issue with jib was that a lot of designers used it because it was an easy bracing system and councils were pretty much set in their ways with a preference for jib and architects often specified it on their plans. So jib is often pre-filled in fact in many building code certification forms despite the Ministry of Business Innovation Employment Manager of Building Performance and Engineering Dave Gittings saying the building regulatory system was material neutral. He said the building and construction sector was able to select whichever product or material to use in each situation. It's because through the building code, MB sets a performance, minimum performance standards that building products must meet, but does not prescribe which materials to be used. So really it's, uh, I guess it's a matter of do you look for alternatives? Which alternatives uh, should you look for? And would the supply situation be any better than that? The... As other, other reps and supplier reps come in this article also talk about things like cladding um, that can take up to nine months when it's normally a two-month ordering cycle. So a lot of different areas in the building industry slowing down and that's making it um, fairly challenging uh, for building companies. In a recent article on a recent program, I talked about uh, sustainable homes and, and passive homes. So this article by Colleen Hawkes on stuff.co.nz says that developers spy a market, but will passive homes become the norm? So for the second time in as many months, we've seen a new passive house development come to our attention. And we're not talking about one-off houses, but a whole row of certified passive houses you can buy off the plan. And this is the Nest Lakeside at Pegasus Bay, north of Christchurch. It'll have eight new passive houses built, certified to passive house low energy build standard, and they can be bought off the plans for one point one seven nine million. So it's quite interesting 
that uh, the press release of this about these properties is probably not an accident. It coincides with the government's announcement of New Zealand's first emissions reduction program, which reveals how the government plans to shave 11.5 million tonnes of carbon dioxide um, equivalent off our emissions by 2022 to 2025. So passive houses are built to a strict set of standards and offer the ultimate in energy efficiency with their airtight building envelopes and mechanical ventilation. It doesn't come any better, but depending on where you live, you might hardly even need to turn on additional heating and then maybe only for an hour or two per day. So it's pretty interesting to hear how these homes just, uh, they used to be pretty much bespoke expensive projects, but now developers are trying to build it in. And the Nest Lakeside is a uh, example of that. So the, the properties are 161 square metres and uh, waterfront views. And probably to someone, say, in Auckland, it seems cheap. Um, but then again, uh, is, is the cost higher or much higher than a standard build? And yes, they do have some additional costs, but it doesn't necessarily make them unaffordable. If it's a design and build passive home, you can save the difference by making your home slightly smaller. So uh, that's an interesting article there. And here's something on the extremes of building, I guess. There's a section the size of a driveway for sale in a coveted capital suburb. So it looks like a driveway, but the strip of land is actually the whole section. And it's pretty overgrown, but the strip of land in Kandala is a section tipped to sell between 410000 and 485000 This was also on stuff.co.nz. Created in 2018 out of excess land from the subdivision of Lakshmi Place Park, the narrow section is just 6.1 metres wide. That's uh, six large paces, if you can imagine that. About the width of a road or driveway at the narrowest part and about 45 metres long. The owner, Juliet Manning, grew up in Kendall and always wanted to return to the suburb to build her own dream home. When the site came up for sale, she jumped at the chance to make that dream come true. She says, what drew me to it was a wonderful location, fabulous sun and sea views. For Kandala, it's quite a gentle slope. And trained as an interior designer, Manning also fell in love with the plans for the new build on the section produced by the previous owner, by Daryl Lynn, for Inspire Architecture. Now, there is an artist drawing of the plans, and this, and if you wanted to look this up, and this is uh, from the 5th of, I'll be your pun, from the 20th of the 5th. There's an artist drawing, and it looks really, really nice. Um, it's, it's incredible what they can do with land of that size. And the purchaser says she really respected and admired the design and how it worked with the land. It didn't feel imposing. It would only add to the, value, uh, the feel of the street. It, she said it was totally perfect for me and maximised the site so well, but unfortunately she didn't have a chance to get the building ball rolling before COVID hit and her circumstances changed. Compounded by the rise in building costs and supplies and the changes to lending restrictions, it meant Manning had to rethink her plans in part with the property. So if you would look at uh, living in a property that's around uh, that six metres wide, it's uh, quite incredible what they can do and there is already a design in place. And uh, there's a lot of established homes in the suburb and it's uh, very well sought after. So it's interesting because it's going to a deadline sale. I'm not quite sure if that's sold or not. I may have to check with uh, it was Bailey's Real Estate to see how that one went and come back to you on that. Here's a story from Taranaki that's come in this week. 
says Taranaki widow now renting after retirement property sank into the ground. Another New Plymouth widow has shared her story about losing her house after the land under it subsided. Annette Corbett is living in rented accommodation after the house she and her late husband bought for their retirement sank into the ground and was deemed unsafe to live in. Man, that's no good. Her situation is very similar to Barbara Hardwich, whose new Plymouth home was built of an, on an old sawdust pit and is slowly sinking into the ground, sinking into the ground, bending and breaking as it does. The New Plymouth District Council has washed its hand of the issue, saying the House complied with the building rules when it was given consent in 1990, and their legal obligation to fix any problems lasted 10 years from when that home was built. On Tuesday, Corbett said her story had so many similarities to what Hardwich was going through. Her house was on Cameron Street in central New Plymouth, and she'd bought it in 2006 with her late husband as a retirement property and hoping it would give them financial security later on. And similar to Hardwich's home, Corbett said hers was built in the 1990s on the site of an old timber mill. So in February last year, her house was sinking so much that Corbett had to pay to put scaffolding up around it to prevent it sinking further so she could keep living in it. When she bought the property, her land information memorandum, that's the summary of all the information the local authority has on file about that property, looked fine, Corbett said. She said she thought about trying to fight the New Plymouth District Council as they gave consent to build on the land, but without her husband she did not have the strength or the money to do so. It was very stressful for her, she said, so she's had to walk away. So in September she sold her house to a developer. Corbett estimated she received about a quarter of a million less than the property would have been worth if it hadn't sunk. So despite the housing boom of 2021, Corbett's house sold for 130000 less than her 2019 government valuation. The council had made it clear that they didn't like uh, councillors getting involved in terms of uh, commenting and that sort of thing as it's an operational manager uh, matter, I should say. Um, some councils feel it's eth- they have an ethical responsibility to help her, but the council itself seems to have washed their hands of the situation. So, um, you know, hopefully they come to some something arrangement there. We'll just have to wait and see. Also happening in central Wellington, work has restarted on a 150 townhouse development after the contractor goes bust. And this was on Stuff uh, in the recent week as well, stuff.co.nz. Builders are back on site uh, after work stopped when construction company Armstrong Downs went into liquidation. Stephen Sutorius, whose company Thames Pacific is the developer behind the Paddington development on Taranaki Street, said the demise of the Armstrong Downs had created delays of three to four weeks and cost his company multiple millions, but buyers would not be paying more for their new homes. The subcontractors that returned to work on Tuesday were the same as those who had been working under Armstrong Downs, but they were now employed by Thames Pacific directly. And Stage 2 and 3 of the Paddington are still under construction. Satoria said Stage 2, which contained 42 properties, should be ready for handover by mid-June, subject to council approval. And Stage 3, which contains about 70 properties, would probably be completed by some point in September. So that's uh, good news um, to get that up and going again. Uh, there was a shutout there, but of course now that's all going ahead. And that's really important as uh, you know, Wellington needs more housing, uh, definitely. Now, I think last week I talked about the historic BNZ Bank in Akaroa that's uh, come up for sale. It's got a vault in the manager's quarters upstairs. And this is the one that was a heritage-listed Category 2 property. And it's a 509-square-metre site. So it's really interesting uh, that that's 
particular property, I just thought I'd mention again, if you did want to find it, it's being sold by Chris Mangles of Bailey's Akaroa, and um, it would be a lovely spot. It's actually a really, it's a, like a landmark uh, in that area for those of you who um, are familiar, and of course um, built in particular style. So that one, I'm not quite sure the method of sale on that one, but there's, on the ground Ground floor, there's uh, was did used to be a bank, and the top floor there's a three bedroom residence. I do remember that there may be some sort of uh, earthquake re um, strengthening needing to be done, but don't quote me on that. I seem to remember that from the previous article. Otherwise, around the country, this article by Katie Jones on stuff.co.nz says that. Sea level rise may threaten Nelson properties sooner than forecast. Over $5 billion of property could be affected by sea level rise in Nelson over the next 100 years, the City Council says. Sounds like a long time, but uh, it, you know that's possibly going to go past uh, fairly quickly in the big scheme of things. And now said... City Council Chief Executive Pat Doherty said the rise in the value of property at risk was due to increasing land values, not a response to the data showing the sea level is rising faster than thought in the region. The data from the New Zealand Sea Rise Programme earlier this month showed Nelson and Tasman District were among parts of New Zealand experiencing, on average, double the global rate of sea level rise due to the rate they were subsiding. Responding to the data on Wednesday, the council said that meant urban areas of Nelson were predicted to face between 40 centimetres and 70 centimetres of relative sea level rise in the next 50 years, which is actually an increase from the 10 to 20 in the previous predictions. Uh, That's uh, quite a considerable amount of land if you're on flat land uh, near the water. So they feel that just over... 4,000 properties in the area have been identified as risk of inundated, of being, sorry, inundation uh, that could be now at risk sooner. So, um, yeah, I guess it's just a matter of if you're purchasing somewhere like um, by the Mai Tai Riverbanks or whether it's close to the waterfront, it's just something to consider what's it going to be like as uh, sea levels rise. Also around the country in New Plymouth, Uh, This article says split views among neighbours of New Plymouth's newest central city public housing development. This article by Jane Matthews on May the 22nd. So welcomed by some and feared by others, a new 45-unit public housing complex in central New Plymouth is ruffling feathers amongst its neighbours even before the foundations have been poured. The three-storey social housing development is being built by Soho Group, Limited on the corner of Leach and Cameron Streets and is expected to be completed by the middle of next year. The two-block complex to be run by, run by Kainga Ora is made up of 23 two-bedroom units and 22 one-bedroom units. It's understood the units will be rented to tenants on a short-term basis and will not be available to purchase. Now there's actually an architectural picture of this and they've really come a long way um, in what these types of properties look like and to me it just looks like a really nice um, low-rise building. But some neighbours have uh, raised concern about lack of consultation and the impact of public housing on the value of their properties where some houses are priced above $1 million. Others have welcomed the development saying people in need should have a place to call home and have criticised their neighbours for judging the complex before it is built. So there's going to be online information systems and that sort of thing and that's where uh, it'll be 
interesting to see where that one goes, but it does beg the question around uh, the government allowing, or well, let me put it another way, the government suggesting that councils should allow uh, these uh, three-storey low-rise buildings, and I know there's uh, one or two here in Palmerston North, and they look absolutely fine. So I just don't know what uh, <laughs> what people are too worried about. But then again, it could be a case of um, nimbyism. That's the not not in my backyard. We're happy to have it, just not right next door to me. So we'll see where that one goes. Going back to developments in general, and tighter development funds won't put a home uh, won't put a halt to home building. So fears that development funding has dried up and that new housing supply will be impacted are growing, but experts don't expect a repeat of past construction busts. The country's long-running shortage of housing is considered one of the drivers behind the huge price increases in recent years. And while the shortfall has been eroded by high levels of home building and slower population growth over the pandemic, a shortage still remains. So there is a concerted government drive to boost supply further. But escalating construction costs, rising interest rates and supply chain related delays are causing problems for developers as mentioned earlier in the show. Some developments have fallen over and last week Wellington construction company Armstrong Downs Commercial went into liquidation. And now mortgage advisors are warning that funding for housing development has dried up. Mortgages Online director Hamish Patel says there is a credit crunch for developers with even non-bank lenders holding back. He is struggling to find lenders willing to finance small developments unless they're being built to rent rather than to sell. It is possible to get it for people with lots of equity and good cash flow, but strong pre-sales are critical, he says. The problem is building costs are increasing at the same time sales are slowing down. And many developers' cash flow is tied to the sales, so the combination can lead to funding problems. If a developer can't generate more sales or get more finance, liquidation may seem a better option. So there is a real risk of a downturn where more half-finished projects start to get dumped, Patel says. It might only be a minor percentage that topples, but it can disrupt the whole market as people panic, and in turn it makes lenders reluctant to keep funding. Mortgage supply company director David Windler says development funding has been tight for a while, but non-bank lenders have got fussier about what they are allocating resources to. They're worried about increasing building costs and reports of developments not settling or running into problems. Their appetite has diminished and they're cherry-picking deals. So that's something that uh, I don't think will have a um, major effect, but it's something which would be starting to see in some of the the larger cities and also just developments even here around Manutu as well. We've got lots around the country today, and in fact, this article here, records smashed as luxury property market booms in Tauranga. So CoreLogic Head of Research Nick Goodall outlines the looming factors that could um, could sink house prices and how important the next election will be. But, says, while the housing market calls in most parts of the country, demand for luxury property is soaring in Blay of Bay of Plenty, with record sales in three towering suburbs over the last 10 days. The beachfront house in Papamoahis sold for $6 million, a fee that real estate agent Cam Winter claims is a record for residential property in the area. The only sale higher than this was a six-hectare development block on Domain Road, Papamoa, he said. The five-bedroom, four-bathroom home is in a coveted ocean beachfront row position and has won multiple awards. The house, which is sweeping views of the coast, includes a gym, a heated pool, a media room and a guest suite. 
Winter, alongside business partner Jason Eaves of Oliver Road Luxury Real Estate, has recently sold a house in Bethlehem for close to $4 million and a house in Welcome Bay for $3 million, both of which he says are record prices for residential properties in the two suburbs. The properties both sold at their list price, which shows confidence in buyers at this level. They're not buying properties as commodities, but rather are waiting for something special that they can connect with. The Bethlehem House, for example, is the original Orange Lane Orchard homestead and was bought by a family already living nearby. Winter says that buyers in the $3 million plus range tend to be less affected by inflation and rising costs. Their purchases do not tend to be affected by changes in interest rates, unlike properties in the sub-$2 million range, where buyers are most likely not cash buyers and are more dependent on the cost of borrowing and bank lending. So if you want to see what... Uh, some of those prices uh, can buy you, then you'd still be able to Google those uh, under, uh, and again, you could probably go and if you looked for uh, the Cam Winter, the, the agent, then it will probably be under the recent sales. Uh, if you want to check out the pictures, etc. All right, so there was some changes in the budget, uh, just happened in the last uh, week or so. Not a lot relating to housing, unfortunately. They've done some uh, things which sound helpful, but I don't know if they actually will be. So this article by Melanie Carroll says, Budget 2022, house price caps off first home loans rise on first home grants. So house price caps will be removed from first home loans and will be lifted on first home grants against a backdrop of a cooling but still expensive housing market. Finance Minister Grant Robertson, who targeted support for first-home buyers through the budget, included increases to the first-home grant caps as prices become more sustainable against the backdrop of record house building in this country. So house prices are forecast to decline 5% in the year ending December 2022 and a further 1.5% in 2023, according to Treasury. That's a national figure. That's lower than the forecast from Westpac and Infometrics of a 10% fall in house prices this year. Households have struggled with soaring house prices, but the runaway market has begun to slow down, according to uh, these folks. So house prices were down 5% since November, according to Westpac. So real house prices are forecast to fall 17.8% over four and a half years, right through till June 2026. But... Uh, Manawatu Wanganui during that time will be extremely busy with a number of projects that mean that we'll, that we'll be largely insulated from that. So Housing Minister Megan Wood said the increase in house price caps for the first home grant recognise the changes in house prices over the past year. So they're increasing the house price caps for the first home grant to align with lower quartile market values for new and existing properties. So that's why it can seem that the caps are still really low relative to the market but remember, the, uh, will they hope allow you to get into a property? It'll just be in the lower quartile of the market. They're also removing house price caps entirely for the first home loan to provide a greater choice of homes for the prospective home buyer. Income caps and lender requirements are sufficient to ensure the first home loan is used by buyers who need support for a first home. What will this mean? Well, funding will be available for an estimated 7,000 additional first-home grants and 2,500 extra first-home loans a year. And house price caps and income caps would be reviewed every six months, which is much more sensible than the current situation where the caps were set but then not changed for a significant time and it couldn't keep up with the market. 
For example, before the changes, caps on the government's first home grants and loans in six of the biggest areas ranged from 600000 in Tauranga and Hamilton to 700000 in Auckland, and there was a 500000 cap for the rest of the country. So the new caps for first home grants will lift to 875 in Auckland for existing and new build properties. Tauranga, the cap will be 800 for an existing property and 875 for a new build and so forth. For the rest of the country, which is us, of course, the grant cap for existing proper properties ranges from 400000 to 875000 depending on where we, where we are. And for new builds, the new range is 500 to 925000 If you can do a new build for uh, 500000 um, house and land, that would be absolutely incredible. But they're still... So are they, are they there? Uh, not sure, but... Um, so certainly existing properties, you may be able to get something at that lower end. So these changes ta- have taken effect already. Um, it does seem, though, it's mainly virtue signalling. I don't know how many people it will actually affect with regards to getting them into homes, but at least they've recognised that they can adjust uh, the the caps upwards as the market goes upwards, and that's probably the most positive thing uh, that's come out of um, the budget for first home loan, uh, people taking first home loans. So that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, We're a bit all over the country uh, this week and um, we look forward to catching up with you here on Property Matters this time uh, next week or if you're listening to the blog, just uh, find the podcasts whenever they are available and I look forward to catching up with you in a week's time. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate.